The Healthy Alabama podcast is sponsored by Enroll Alabama, a program that enrolls Alabamians in the health insurance marketplace. Enroll Alabama is a project of AIDS Alabama. For more information, visit the website AIDSAlabama.org. Welcome to perhaps the most important episode of the Healthy Alabama podcast that we've ever done. And I say that because we are doing this podcast. This is our first recorded interview that is being done in the age of, as we say colloquially, Rona, and as we say <laughs> formally, the coronavirus, or CO, what do we say? COVID-19. 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 And that informed voice that you hear on the other side of the studio is uh, Dr. Stephen Lahing. He is a professor, a professor in the chemistry, well, like your dad. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> professor... Uh, the chemistry runs in the blood, literally and figuratively. Dr. La Hing, Stephen La Hing, uh, is here at Oakwood University, and he actually has a background in infectious diseases. And so today on the Healthy Alabama podcast, we're going to discuss from Dr. La Hing's standpoint, you know, drawing on his expertise, what's going on. We're going to try to get an understanding of this, um, of this horrific invisible menace that has brought the world to its knees. So, Dr. Lahing, welcome to the Healthy Alabama Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, uh, I want to start by, I've been telling people in saying that, you know, I was going to have you on, mm-hmm. I've been telling people that you are an expert in infectious diseases, which I think is true, but is broad. Right. Yeah. So, get into the specifics of your background. So during my graduate school work at Texas A&M University, I had the opportunity to work in one of the top tuberculosis research labs in the world, led by Dr. James Sacatini. And so um, as part of my graduate work, I got to work in in a uh, secure lab dealing with live cultures of tuberculosis and trying to discover candidate drugs that would actually work against it. And so I actually dealt with live cell cultures, growth robotics and doing it. I had a library of about 50,000 drugs I worked with doing that. And so um, I had to get an x-ray twice a year Mm. and do a a breathing test twice a year as part of working on it because of, you know, tuberculosis having, being so uh, virulent and having such an infectious rate. So thankfully I passed all of those. (laughs) Right, right, right. So, and I'm assuming that in, in a setting like that, you are taking all of the precautions and then some oh, yes. that we're now being told we should take today. Yes, I had a mask. I, I had a N95 respirator, which now everyone now knows about. Before, that was something that was a pretty technical thing. Right. I had to wear two jackets, shoe covers, double gloves. Uh, we worked in HEPA-grade filtered, filtered hoods. To do transfers. What is, what is that? So HEPA is a is a type of filter. It, it's it's a really used when you're dealing with research that includes things that could be airborne, and so those are special type of hoods that you know only my arms were in that I was able to move oh, things around. I've seen that on yeah, television. Yeah, yes, just, that just like what you see in movies and TV. Okay. Yeah, all right. And it vents differently so that it keeps the room from getting whatever is in the air inside the hood. It keeps things contained. Okay. Yeah. So. As this thing began to unfold, did you have flashbacks? <laughs> a little bit, because uh, the running joke in my family is that uh, as it started to occur, 
I told my wife, Ebony, who also has a scientific background, I said, we've seen this movie before. Wow. And so the first thing we talked about is uh, if you've seen him, Contagion and Outbreak. And actually uh, a good friend of my uh, – You're talking about two Hollywood movies. Two Hollywood movies. Yeah. yeah. Contagion and Outbreak. And Outbreak. And yeah. actually on Contagion, a good friend of my boss in graduate school was the science consultant for okay. that. So it's you know two degrees of separation, right? Right. But I said – and even from talking with professors who also have this type of training at Oakwood, uh, one of them being Dr. Vanderpool, Elaine Vanderpool, in biology, you said if they don't get a hold of this, this is going to be a pandemic because of the transmission rate and because of the dangers involved with how how it infects people. All right, so let's let's go ahead and un- unpack some things. Sure. First of all, where do you want to start? <laughs> well, you know where I'd like to start really is with your evaluation of how well our nation is doing in responding from a scientific standpoint, I'm not talking politics. Right. I mean, I have a very definite political point. Of sure. View, sure. You know, which I don't hide from people. Mm-hmm. You know, the president gives himself an A, I give him an F. <laughs> uh, but, but a lot of that is informed by politics sure. and my view of him politically Though I will also say that taking politics out of it, it seems to me he still gets enough based on just basic caretaking of the nation. Yeah. But you're a scientist. Mm-hmm. You're going to evaluate this differently. How do you evaluate it? It's really a situation where we have some of the best scientific minds and we have some of the best medical minds in the country. We have so much resources as a country, but it's like, dealing with something we know is coming and being held back from doing it and acting on it as soon as we could. We knew that this entered this country as early as as the middle of January, okay? We didn't see any sort of definitive action until within the last month, okay? We knew that this was coming based on what we saw in other countries. We saw how it was growing and spreading uh, as an epidemic in other countries. And um, you even hear stories about... uh, People in, in, in Seattle, Washington, scientists who said we need to start testing for this very early on and uh, people in government saying no and uh, the CDC banning them from doing their tests and they ended up testing anyhow and that's really how we get a lot of the data set from the state of Washington. And so it, there's a lot of frustration because this wasn't a – it's hard to dodge a punch that you don't see coming. But this was something that a lot of people in this country who are so skilled and who study these things saw approaching. And so it's tough to separate the politics because the politics, I think, actually informed how the federal government moved on this. It's a great point. And, yeah. and so I think that the federal government as a whole moved way too slowly. And I think that a lot of people are going to be hurt because of it. And there's still even the attitudes that were conveyed from people in government who are not experts was still something that really now we see has direct consequences in hurting people. You heard about the couple uh, from out West who the wife is in critical. The husband died because they took a series of drugs that they heard about in the press conference. Yeah. Well, yeah, they thought they were taking the drug the president was talking about, but actually they were taking I guess a, a version of the drug that's used for aquariums. Right. And right. clean aquariums. Wrong thing. Yeah. The wrong thing. Yeah. Wrong version. And it proved and fatal. It, and it killed, it killed the husband mm-hmm. and it apparently is killing 
or possibly killing the wife. Well, we hope not. But uh, last yeah. I saw was uh, in the press was that she was in critical condition. Yeah. Right. So your evaluation of the federal leadership is uh, then probably more or less what mine is. Again, as you said, I think that's a very important distinction that you made. I view this very much as a political person. But you're saying as a scientist, you also realize that the politics informed the choices. Right. Elaborate on that just a little bit. So we have people within the scientific community who not only saw this coming, but were very loud about it. And you had officials even at the CDC who were, for lack of a better term, muzzled and told that they were no longer allowed to make public statements about this because they didn't want them inciting panic or telling people about what could possibly come from coronavirus. And I just think that I understand politically that the last thing that this current group of administration wants to do is affect the economy because it's a strong suit for them. And so I understand the reasoning from a purely political stance why corona would be disastrous for them. But what I don't understand is once they had the data that this was not just the flu, this was not just going to disappear, as original press conference said, 15 days or so, and it would disappear magically, that they could not have acted more and gone to an, a state of emergency more and encouraged people to stay home from the beginning because that would just be too disruptive. And so I think that that sets the framework now for even down south here in Alabama you still have a large number of people, probably lessening now, who are still living off of anecdotal evidence. I don't know anyone that's sick. I, I think it's a hoax or I don't believe that. I think it's overblown. It's, it's still the, a sentiment you hear a lot of depending on what circle you're in. Yeah. And I think since last week, going into these next couple of weeks, a lot of those people are going to start to see someone they know. And now it's going to start to be real. Now Mm -hmm. that they when they start to deal with someone actually closer to them that is dealing with the effects of this, it takes between four and 11 days for you to get symptoms. The national average now is five to six days before you show symptoms. You feel completely fine and you're going about your daily life, but you're infectious Mm -hmm. with the flu. You know when you have the flu. The moment it hits you, you you know. know when you have the flu. You tell people. I feel like I'm catching the flu. I'm going to stay home. I'm going to get Tamiflu. I'm going to go to my doctor. I'm staying home. I have the flu. Your coworker gets the flu. You don't expect to see them. You don't want to see them. Right. 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 They know it, and they're in turn able to tell you. COVID-19 is a different beast. You can feel completely fine at most light symptoms, right, and still function and still work, still interact, go to movies, go to the grocery store. Pick up your kids, interact with your parents, and be infectious. We're talking with Dr. Stephen LaHing today on the Healthy Alabama podcast. He is a professor in the chemistry department at Oakwood University. He has a background in dealing with infectious diseases. His area of specialty was tuberculosis. But ironically, you were telling me before we started recording that scientists, researchers, experts are now looking at a tuberculosis vaccine or cure yeah. from 50 years ago to Literally. apply to? Yeah. This morning, early this morning on, on the website of Science, which is one of our top-tier journals, 
in the world for coverage. Uh, there's an article titled, Can a Century-Old TB Vaccine Steal the Immune System Against the New Coronavirus? And so there was uh, many of you from the Caribbean listening will know that you had grandparents or you yourself that have a scar on one of your shoulders. And so one of those reasons maybe for that scar is because you were given the BCG vaccine, which uh, contains a live weakened strain of Mycobacterium bovis, which is a cousin of TB. And so um, it was given to children in most countries of the world. It's safe and cheap. And so it prevents about 60% of tuberculosis cases in children on average with you know, large differences depending on country. But they're wondering now if this, because they've seen bleed over effect where it's actually protected people who got it from other types of diseases, respiratory. And so they're now wondering if this could actually have a protective effect against people who might be at risk for coronavirus. And so they're doing a bunch of studies now with over a thousand people who are on the front lines as far as uh, doctors and nurses who get in line to get this just to see if it works. Mm. Yeah, well, that's that's probably one of the more dangerous parts of, of this virus as well is that it puts so many of our best and brightest on the front lines and, and medicine at risk because not only can they be at risk, but they have so much patient contact yes. that they can spread it even though they're feeling fine just like we would. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so to lose that body of knowledge for them to get sick is is a double whammy. It's disastrous. Sure, sure. I keep thinking about how frightening it is that something that cannot be seen with the naked eye mm-hmm. or detected without sophisticated scientific instrumentation has brought the world to its knees. Mm-hmm. Something that doesn't even fully fit the the technical description of what life is. It doesn't. It doesn't. Oh, it, it flat out doesn't. Most people would say that viruses are not living. So explain to us what a virus is and then to the best of your ability what COVID-19 is. So COVID-19 is of a family of viruses. Um, it's uh, coronavirus is actually a family of viruses. And you've heard these. It's it has some famous cousins before now, MERS and SARS, if you recall back to the early 2000s. Right. So this family of virus is well known. Okay. What's not well known is how this actually spreads and why it attacks the lungs, specifically of those that are elderly, 65 and above. If you want the good news about all of this, here's the best news. And this is what I've really tried to push online, on social media, and dealing with my class of concerned students and even my son's preschool where we talk about this. It is a a lipid membrane-bound virus. And so lipid membrane, think of uh, the closest thing I think of is like saran wrap, okay? Something wrapped in saran wrap. It's flexible, it's pliable, but it's what helps it to maintain its structure and allows it to stay on surfaces. So we'll go with the bad news and then we'll go with the good news. Uh, coronavirus is able to stay on surfaces for hours and still infect someone after touching a surface, which makes it extremely dangerous. This is why there's so much Lysol wipes flying out of stores, why they say making sure your area is clean matters, because if someone infectious has been there, even if you're not in their presence, if they've touched a door, if they've sneezed and touched a doorknob, sneezed or coughed, covered their face, and then touched a doorknob or, or a microphone or whatever else, you could come along hours later, not even know the person that was infectious, touch that surface, 
and then touch your nose or mouth and get it. So the first good piece of news is that it doesn't just absorb on your skin. Okay. Mucous membrane. It has to be through your mouth or your nose or your eyes. Okay. And that can only happen normally if someone coughs or sneezes in your vicinity and those droplets, those microscopic droplets get on you and you inhale, or if you touch a surface and then touch your nose, your mouth, your eyes. All right. That's why so many people want the mask. Not so much that it filters as well, which may be true, but that it keeps your hands away from your most sensitive areas for contacting it, your nose and mouth. Yeah. The next piece of good news is that that lipid membrane is also a huge weakness for it. Regular soap will break down that membrane and deactivate the virus. Washing your hands, and this is the same thing I told my, my son's preschool, washing your hands for 20 seconds underwater with a, a normal, regular soap. You don't have to spend top money for whatever soap in the store. 20 seconds front and back will actually disarm the virus. Wow, that is good news. That's great news. Yeah, and I, and I know they're pushing it. Everyone talks about the hand sanitizer. Hand sanitizer does work because it's, you know, 60-plus percent alcohol-based, and so that will lyse it and that will destroy it. That will deactivate the virus as well. But it's still not as good as good old-fashioned soap and water. So why aren't we telling people, uh, instead of spending money on Lysol, Lysol just um – Get a bucket of soap and water and wipe down the surfaces. Depending on your sources, that's what's being said. CDC and WHO have been screaming that from the rooftops, that good practicing the same types of uh, defensive things you would health-wise with flu season actually is the most effective way, along with social distancing now, to protect yourself from corona. One of the funnier things I've read about is, um, you know, our grandparents – are really smart. Our great grandparents and our grandparents are really smart. I come from West Indian background. I don't know uh, if this was the same for you growing up, but the very first thing that I had to do when I got home is wash my hands and change out of my school clothes. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so now they're saying that coronavirus can stay on fabric on your clothing for hours. And so depending on your interaction with your clothes, it could be a method of transmission as well. And so when I heard about them saying, change out of your clothes. I thought of my grandmother, uh, Vivian, who always, <laughs> yeah. when, even when I go visit her, she said, uh, this is what you wore to school. I said, yes. And she said, change, change your clothes, wash your hands, mm-hmm. change your clothes and go eat. Wow. And so there's some wisdom. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Ancient wisdom. Mm-hmm. Ancient wisdom. So now, what is a virus? So a virus is somewhere depending on who you talk to, somewhere between living and dead, right? But it doesn't really characterize what we say is living. It doesn't necessarily have any sort of complex sentience or have any of the things that we view as living. Uh, A virus is actually normally a microscopic, for lack of a better term, package that can carry genetic information in it. And so um, if you've seen the structure of covid it looks like a porcupine ball, yeah, right? Yeah. And so what happens is it gets inside of you and then starts to infect your cells, specifically within the lungs. And so that's why one of the early detections, whether or not they have a test, is to do an X-ray. Even now I have family members who are, hospital, who are hospitalists in New York. Before they give you the test, they still give you an X-ray on the lungs because that's still going to be one of the early detections. If you have it or not, you'll have fluid and lung buildup. So it attacks cells within the lungs. And it actually causes those cells to divide 
and reproduce. Okay? And so they talk about virus and viral infections. This is why antibiotics don't work against it because antibiotics are built for bacteria. So this virus, once it gets inside your lungs, it reproduces, and that's once, you know, five to six days later, you start to have a dry cough, right? And then you start to have other symptoms involved with it, and that's when the red flags go up. So a virus is not a living thing. No, not technically. But it has an energy source of some sort. That compels it to move around and to it's passive. take action, right? No, so, so yeah, it, it moves around passively. So for humans, the transmission is literally through the microscopic droplets of mucus and saliva from a cough or from a sneeze. And so, But you said it attacks the lungs. Once it gets inside the lungs. Right. So, so it has to get there because you inhale the droplets right. from someone's cough or sneeze. I'm just trying to, I'm just wrestling with this idea of this is something that's not alive yet. It functions. It has functionality. Yeah, it does true. things, mm-hmm. and it and it does predetermine things. It sounds mm-hmm. like so. It's almost like um, an errant bit of code or something. That's a great way of looking at it. That's actually very accurate. It's 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 a a bit of code that leeches onto you and takes control of an area and causes you to develop these symptoms. And this bits of code have to enter you through those cavities we talked about before, and they, they ride the transmission of your coughs and sneezes or fluids. Fascinating. All right, so we're facing this horrific challenge. How long do you think we're going to be dealing with this? I think we're going to be dealing with this in some form or fashion for the rest of the year. Even once we return back to quote-unquote normal life, we'll still be dealing with the ramifications. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, But I think that depending on what leadership says, this could either go really long or not as long. I heard a really great uh, podcast yesterday. Uh, one of the NPR guys had, a, had a, one of the epidemiologists on and said if, if they could wave a magic wand and everyone stayed at home for two to three weeks and just sheltered in place and everyone strictly did it, this is over. Hmm. Be over like quickly. It'd be over quickly hmm. because at that point, two to three weeks, you now know who has it because it's past the date of symptoms showing. So now symptoms are showing for those that have it. You're better able to keep everyone separate who has it. Well, you saw what China did. China, tell us. Tell us. So, so you know, at this point, most people now have heard of the city of Wuhan. Yes. <laughs> who didn't know about it before? This is where the outbreak happened, and China basically walled the men legally and said, "We are limiting access." mass transit, we're limiting everything in and out of the city, we're still fighting it medically, but we cannot allow the population of the city to spread across the country, which they still, even though they did that, it still spread a bit. They're now claiming no new cases, which if, you see, if you've seen how badly the city of Wuhan has, dealt, has had to deal with it, that's really an astonishing thing for the government of China to be able to say. Let's, let's stay there a minute. <laughs> I have had uh, an interesting exchange with some people. My contention is that the Trump administration was reckless and incompetent when they decided to shut down that epidemiological position that was embedded there in China. The person who the epidemiologist who was there in China who could have given the United States and really the world frontline information about what was going on, mm-hmm. especially since we know 
China is somewhat of a uh, insular society, mm-hmm. politically, culturally, etc. Do you blame China for any of this? I mean, do you feel that China could have been more transparent? Because this is what some some people are saying. They're saying, "Well, you know, you, you could you could point the finger at Trump, but really, China should have been more transparent." I mean, you're dealing with so many factors now. You're talking about politics. You're talking about culture as a whole, and you're talking about a a, a country in China that is very protective of not only their culture but their borders, and so you know they they control the internet. They control in, within their borders. Right. They're very strict. Right. I don't think you should be surprised when a ti- when a tiger acts like a tiger. There's nothing that would make it seem as if they they're not behaving outside of what we know their, their norm as a, as a as a country. And with that said, let's yeah. be clear because I've I've been fascinated about the scientific aspect of all of this. The scientific community in China has been absolute heroes, and they very early on were able to get the code for what makes up genetically this virus and share it with the world. And so there's been a ton of frontline work done in the Chinese scientific community, not to hoard that information, but to share it with the world for other countries that may be starting to battle this. So do I blame China? Not really, because I don't think any administration would be fully prepared for what we are seeing. Hmm. Okay, so you said that uh, my original question was, how long do you think we're going to be dealing with this? You said we're going to be dealing with the ramifications of it until the end of the year, and I, I take it by that you mean economic ramifications. Oh, no doubt. Past that. And some societal ramifications. Yeah. But what about medical ramifications? How long are we going to be dealing with those? I think for a very long time, and the reason for that is the shock up front and the ripple effect later. So what do I mean by shock up front? Our country is not prepared in number of beds or in number of ventilators. Remember, this is a respiratory disease for the estimates of the infected and sick. While a lot of people recover from this, the most vulnerable are those that have what are called comorbidities, which are diabetes, uh, high blood pressure, immunocompromised, uh, cancer patients. Uh, And so our country has a large number of those. And so... The the hope of the scientific community and even of the medical community was that we, by sheltering in place, you've heard the term flatten the curve. Yes. So this is really talking about the curve of infection rate. The flatter the curve, the more likely that our medical facilities nationwide are able to keep up with the demand for beds and doctors and treatment. When you get these spikes, these really high-sloped mountainous spikes, we cannot, we don't have the materials we don't have the manpower. We don't have the bed capacity in our treatment facilities, both urban and suburban, to handle hundreds of thousands of sick at once. And so I think that if we are able to really shelter in place and follow the professional advice of those in the administration who are experts on this, hopefully as we get into fall, we really start to take a turn. Dr. Stephen Lahing is a chemistry professor at Oakwood University and is an expert in infectious diseases, specifically the uh, tuberculosis disease. One final question. Mm -hmm. Are you optimistic that perhaps this cure from 50 years ago, this tuberculosis cure Mm -hmm. from 50 years ago, may very well be the answer 
to the problem and that it will help to save lives? Not a cure. I think it's going to, it has great possibility because of the umbrella shadowing protective effect it had against other diseases that uh, it could be another deterrent and tool that people might be able to take to further protect them. But cure, cure is a very strong word. I don't think, I mean, now they, they have three frontline drugs that they're testing. The World Health Organization has a billion-dollar thing they're doing uh, with three frontline drugs. One of them is a, a former HIV drug, uh, and I, I failed to remember off the top of my head the other two. They're really trying to find anything they can, and because that's also part of my background is in drug development, it normally takes between 8 and 13 years for a drug to get from R&D through trials to the market, this is going to shatter that record because of the world need. Yeah. They're talking about a vaccine conservatively in a year, which sounds like a long time, but that's actually incredibly fast. And a vaccine prevents people from contracting the disease. Mm-hmm. Just like your flu vaccine. But it doesn't cure. It doesn't cure it. That's right. Your flu vaccine makes you much less likely to get the flu. Or if you do get the flu, it greatly, greatly minimizes your symptoms and your level of suffering. And so I'm hoping that if they're able to get this vaccine out for corona, that it would have the same type of effect because then you're you're immunocompromised. People who are really at risk. I'm worried about my parents and their generation, right? They're coming up on that, that, that border age. And so it would allow them, just like they get the flu shot every year, it would allow them to be more protected from this corona. Dr. Lahing, thank you very much for joining us today on the Healthy Alabama Podcast. No problem. Thank you for having me. The Healthy Alabama Podcast is sponsored by Enroll Alabama, which is a project of AIDS Alabama. It is produced in partnership with WJOU, Oakwood University. Oakwood University Radio praise 90.1 FM, and it's on the campus here of Oakwood University. Our theme music was created by... D.J. Bailey at the mixing board doing his thing. And production support, a significant amount of production support, has been provided to me by Damian Malone. I'm David Person, host and producer. Until next time, be healthy.